1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
2: Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post. I'm
1: calling. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach from. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March third. Today, the Texas decision to reopen, the denomination of Nira Tandon and how Amazon is using architecture to distract us.
2: Too many Texans have been sidelined from employment opportunities. Too many small business owners have struggled to pay their bills. This must end.
3: Last night, Governor Greg Abbott announced that Texas will be fully scaling back its efforts to contain the coronavirus.
2: Also, I am ending the statewide mask mandate.
3: Yeah! Both rescinding the mask mandate, which he'd put into place in early July of last year, and also opening up businesses like restaurants and bars to full
2: capacity. All businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%
3: no longer having any restriction on the number of people that could be there.
1: That is Philip Bump. He's a national politics correspondent for The Post. And he spoke with producer Jordan-Marie Smith about what this big decision signals for the rest of the country.
4: Okay, that seems, just to be honest, like a bad idea. So I'm kind of curious as to why this is happening now.
3: I think a lot of people are curious why this is happening now. Uh, The director of the CDC had said just this week that it was not the time to start scaling back restrictions, both because the dramatic drop off in the number of new cases that we'd seen recently had begun to slow uh, and also because there are these more contagious variants which are out there. And in fact, there was a news report from the Houston Chronicle this week showing that three of those variants were already in Texas. So it's not really clear why this is happening now. There's obviously a lot of politics involved in the coronavirus response that may be playing a role here. But it does seem, particularly with the announcement shortly after Abbott's, the government, federal government, will be able to provide enough vaccine doses to inoculate every adult American. It seems strange at this moment to suddenly open up the door for potentially increases in infections.
4: So all of this is happening right after Texas just got finished dealing with a death toll
3: from massive winter storms, right? Part of the important context here is that Texas is still recuperating from this massive freeze that it underwent last month. Millions of people were left without power. There were, at least earlier this week, still reports people lacked access to potable water this is a moment of crisis broadly for the state of Texas, one from which it is only slowly emerging, and then on top of that, we have this change in the coronavirus containment, which threatens to potentially reverse or unwind not only some of the progress that's been made in controlling the virus in Texas, but also more broadly in the United States. One of the things that we've seen is obviously the virus does not adhere to state borders, Uh, and so by reopening in Texas, and then shortly after that, the governor of Mississippi made a similar declaration, it really does increase the chances that we may see an uptick in infections broadly in the country, not just in those states.
4: So how has Texas handled the pandemic thus far? Like what's its history been during this
3: entire ordeal? Texas is one of those states which when the coronavirus first emerged last spring was relatively unaffected. It had fairly low case totals we saw the first real emergence of the, of the virus in New York City and in the states surrounding that area. Texas really wasn't hit very hard. And so it very quickly moved to roll back uh, the initial containment measures, which would have taken a stay-at-home order, which went into place in late March, for example. But then it was one of those states which was at the center of the outbreak that occurred last summer. There were a number of states, particularly in the Sun Belt, which saw big spikes in the number of cases And Texas was one of them. That was the point at which Abbott instituted the mask mandate and started to scale back businesses in the state. Texas, like so many other states, also saw another surge over the course of December and January. It is because we're coming down from that surge. Now, that's the rationale that Abbott appears to be using for scaling back to those measures. But obviously, it is the case that there was a correlation. We can't say necessarily causation, but there's a correlation between the effort to reopen the state of Texas and the spike that occurred last summer.
4: So for Texas specifically, what do case numbers and deaths look like right now?
3: When Abbott first instituted the mask mandate in early July of last year, the number of new cases the state was seeing on average was about 6,300. Now, as he's scaling that back, the number is closer to 8,000. Now, obviously, the trends are very important here. It was trending up then. It's trending down now. But it remains the case that there are more people each day contracting the virus than there were then. And it's hard to imagine that were people adhering closely to the mask mandate. And it's important to note that the number of cases started to trend down again shortly after that mandate went into effect. But if it is the case uh, that the mask mandate has an effect, Texas will start seeing cases rise from a higher point than where it was last July. So with
4: Governor Greg Abbott... Reversing the mask mandate, doing away with it, and 100% opening all businesses. Does that change a lot of the COVID culture in Texas? Like, what was the state like before the governor announced these changes?
3: I think it's important to say, of course, that there's been a broad pushback on things like wearing masks from the political right. Uh, obviously, there are in a lot of Republicans in Texas who may adhere to the idea that, that masks are unnecessary. But one of the things we've heard since Abbott made his announcement is that small businesses are now put in a difficult position where there may be small businesses or even you know businesses like Home Depot or Lowe's or things like that, which have corporate policies where masks need to be worn mm-hmm. and are now going to have to deal with customers coming and saying, well, the state says I don't have to do that. And having that additional tension, which having the mandate itself ameliorates. There's there's a, a classic uh, story from the NHL, which is that prior to ha- the hockey league instituting the wearing of helmets and making that a rule, most players wanted to wear them, but they just thought that would be seen as not sufficiently tough if they did. Uh, and so they were actually relieved by the implementation of the rule because it meant that they had to wear the helmets. There was no more of that sort of masculine posturing. The analogy here is that it is for a lot of companies beneficial to have a mandate for people to wear masks because it removes that question of how they're going to actually try and enforce a preventive measure, which they think is important.
4: Are there any other states that are considering similar like loosening of restrictions, sort of like what Texas is doing
3: the state of Mississippi shortly after Abbott's announcement uh, made a similar one saying mm-hmm. that they would remove mask mandate and, and open up fully. There's been a lot of pressure, particularly on Republican uh, governors, to make similar moves. I mean, Christy Noem of South Dakota had sort of embraced this as a strategy for a long time. It's very possible that Abbott has seen the political response that Noam has gotten and, and wanted a piece of, the, of that similar sort of uh, embrace from the political right. I feel as though a lot of Republican governors are going to feel pressure to say that, yes, this is the moment, regardless of what health officials might say.
4: So how might this no mask freedom in Texas and the reopening 100 percent of businesses in Texas, how might that affect the pandemic and COVID transmission in the United States as a whole?
3: So one of the things that we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that the virus obviously doesn't respect state lines. Uh, The outbreak, which actually began in mid-September, has been linked back to an event that was held in South Dakota in August, and that very quickly spread across the United States. We have consistently seen that places where the virus gets out of control, it moves out beyond that. There's an additional threat, which health officials have warned us about, which is that by having more infections, we increase the risk that there will be mutation to the virus, which actually proves to be more dangerous or more contagious. Those are variations that occurred because someone contracted the virus and the virus mutated uh, as it was reproducing within that infected individual. The more people you have who are infected, the more likely that can occur, the more dangerous it becomes broadly.
1: Philip Bump is a national correspondent for The Post. Jordan-Marie Smith is a producer for Post Reports.
5: So on Tuesday, the White House announced that it was withdrawing the nomination of Neera Tandon to be director of Office of Management and Budget.
1: Sungmin Kim is a White House reporter for The Post. She spoke with Post Reports editor Alexis Diao about Biden's first cabinet nomination to backfire.
5: She would be the first woman of color, the first South Asian woman to lead the OMB, which is a key role in any cabinet, but especially now as the Biden administration is navigating um, writing a coronavirus relief package. But Nera Tanded had run through a lot of obstacles and was facing bipartisan opposition in the Senate. She withdrew in a letter to President Biden. She told him that she did not want to be a distraction from other urgent policy priorities of the White House, particularly as she said in her letter that she did not see a remaining path to confirmation. Who is Neera So, Nira Tandon is a veteran Democratic political operative who's uh, very well known in Washington. Her most recent job was uh, running the Center for American Progress, which is this powerful think tank of progressive ideas. And she is also a very close Hillary Clinton ally. So, she was a big supporter of the Democratic presidential candidate in 2016.
1: Good afternoon. It's truly an honor for me to address this convention. I am so very proud to support Hillary Clinton. She's there for people. She has your back. And that matters in Washington. What you do, not just what you say, matters.
5: But in her role as a Hillary Clinton ally, Hillary Clinton surrogate in 2016, she also tangled a lot with supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders, the independent from Vermont who ran against Hillary Clinton. So she does have a pretty partisan background. And then she was put in this role by uh, then President-elect Biden back in December to lead the Office of Management and Budget, which is this big, sprawling agency that oversees you know, the budgets and the finances of every federal agency. So she's clearly a divisive character. She's the first of Biden's nominees to be dropped. What were the grounds? What was the reasoning behind this? So uh, a couple of things. First, uh, remember that right now we are in a 50-50 Senate where tiebreakers are broken by Vice President Kamala Harris, where Senate Democrats have the majority just on the basis of the fact that they have the White House. So that means any one senator, especially those senators in the middle, can wield a lot of power. And also, it really is a test of democratic unity because on so many of these policy priorities and certainly on nominations you can't lose a single Democrat. That means you have to rely on a Republican to kind of push your push your priority over the finish line, to push your nominee through. And that's something that no White House wants to have to count on. But uh, uh, Nira Tandon's nomination began to collapse a couple of weeks ago when Senator Joe Manchin, who is probably the most conservative Senate Democrat, represents West Virginia, announced that he would oppose her and pointed to a lot of these, you know, kind of intemperate partisan remarks remarks before she was nominated for the job.
1: That the testimony that you will give the Senate Budget Committee will be the truth,
0: the whole truth, and nothing but the truth.
4: I do.
5: So to be clear, Nira Tanda did apologize for those posts in her confirmation hearing.
1: Over the last few years, it's been part of my role to be an impassioned advocate. I know there have been some concerns about some of my past language in social media, and I regret that language and take responsibility for it. I understand that the role of OMB director calls for bipartisan action as well as nonpartisan adherence to facts and
5: evidence. She says she deleted more than a thousand tweets when she was nominated for the job. And she pledged to work in a bipartisan way um, in her confirmation hearing should she be confirmed. But that wasn't enough for Senate Republicans who constantly went after her. And it also was not enough for Joe Manchin either. So that means the attention really turned to these uh, Republican senators who are seen as, you know, potentially allies and partners with the Biden administration, such as Susan Collins, of Maine and Mitt Romney of Utah, but uh, they weren't quite on board either. Once they indicated they would oppose her, all of the attention turned to Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She, you know, carefully considered her nomination. She even met with Neera Tanden on Monday afternoon. Um, Senator Murkowski never publicly said what her position was for the OMB job, but it was clear to both the White House and Neera Tanden that um, as of Tuesday night that she was not getting confirmed. What did her tweets actually say? I mean, to go back and delete a thousand of them, it's a lot. It certainly is a lot of tweets. So they got to be pretty personal. She's referred to Republicans as evil
0: and monster. You wrote that Susan Collins is, quote, the worst. I mean, you call Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut. That vampires have more heart than Ted Cruz. Uh, You called Leader McConnell, Moscow Mitch. I want the record to reflect that I did not call Senator
3: Sanders an ignorant slut, okay?
5: Another element of this fight was that it also raised accusations of a potential double standard, particularly for a woman of color who was facing a high profile political position in Washington because, see, Senate Republicans brought up her combative tweets going after Republican senators. But at the same time, these are the same Republican senators who feigned ignorance, quite frankly, during the Trump administration, when President Trump would have scores of you know, combative, you know, toxic tweets, it did raise a question of why was President Trump able to get away with this? Why did Republican senators kind of uh, let him get by with not even a slap on the wrist, but they were willing to punish Neera Tandon for her combative rhetoric? How common is it for a presidential nominee for a cabinet position to be withdrawn? So had every member of President Biden's first cabinet gone through, that would have actually been the first time in decades that that would have happened. It is typical just by the virtue of math that, you know, first term presidents lose at least a one cabinet nominee. So it does happen. And it would have been rare if everyone had survived intact, especially because, again, of the dynamics that Biden is facing. You know, he is, has the barest of majorities right now. Both President Obama and President Trump, not only did they have control of the Senate as well, but they also had bigger majorities, much bigger majorities in, some, in at least Obama's case than uh, President Biden does. So Democrats have been unified on most other picks that President Biden has gotten confirmed, actually, some have been confirmed with overwhelmingly bipartisan votes, as high as 80, 90 some odd votes. But I think it was kind of clear, even from the time that then-president-elect Biden nominated her, that uh, Neera Tanden could have been the problematic one.
0: For director of office of managing the budget, I nominate Neera Tanden. You know, I've known Neera a long time. She, she, she'll be in charge of laying out the budget that will help us control the virus and deal with the economic crisis, and build back better. But above all, she believes what I believe. A budget should reflect our value
5: back in mid-December when Nira Tandon was nominated, it actually seemed at the time that Republicans would maintain the majority. Uh, and back then, um, Republican leaders said that in a Republican Senate, there was no way that Neera Tandon would get confirmed. There were, uh, you know, Republican committee leaders weren't even committed to holding hearings for her. And, you know, in a Republican Senate, she couldn't get confirmed. But in a Democratic Senate, she couldn't get confirmed either. So it definitely was uh, whether you want to pin it on President Biden or his team. It was a, a bit of a misread. Do we know who President Biden may look to for directing the OMB at this point? So there are a couple of contenders who had been floating actually since Near Tandon's nomination began to unravel a little bit. The runaway front runner, uh, what, at least from the congressional perspective, is a woman named Shalanda Young. She was actually nominated to be Deputy OMB Director, and she actually had her confirmation hearings on Tuesday. And she is a former staff director for the House Appropriations Committee, obviously a Democrat, but has deep working relationships with Republicans. She is overwhelmingly respected. House Democratic leaders and the Congressional Black Caucus are already lobbying for her, but there are other names being floated in the mix. Ann O'Leary, an official out in California, Gene Sperling, a former economic official in the Clinton administration. Um, So it'll be interesting to see uh, which path President Biden takes. If he does tap Shalonda Young, it really is kind of this acknowledgement to Capitol Hill that they have a lot of influence here and they have a say in the Biden administration about what they're willing to accept, you know, both from the Senate and the House. If he doesn't, um, that'll be interesting to see how that is received on the Hill.
1: Sung Min Kim covers the White House for The Post. Alexis Diao is an editor for Post Reports.
0: The new Super Beats Hard Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.
1: And now, one more thing. Producer Ariel Plotnick talked to art and architecture critic Phil Kennecott about the announcement of a new building coming to the D.C. area.
2: You have to imagine something like a glass shell coming out of the ground, maybe twisting as if it's almost kind of drilling its way out of the earth. Some people have said this building looks a little bit like the poop emoji. So the building is called the Helix, and it's the centerpiece of this enormous development of HQ2, Amazon's second headquarters in Arlington. And
1: by the way, Amazon's founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, owns The Washington Post.
2: They call it the helix, and they reference DNA, which is a a double helix strand, the the molecule that's kind of foundational to all life. The helix shows up in, in other ways in nature, in certain kinds of flowers. They want to reference, because this is a building that is based on an architectural idea called biophilia, they want to make sure that you understand that the basic form of it is a kind of life form.
5: And so is this going to be an office building, like with desks and conference rooms?
2: So Amazon took pains to say this is not an office building. In fact, they wanted to make sure that you didn't think of this as having traditional floors like an office building. This is meant to be a gathering place, a decompression place, a place where you can go and sit among plants and get a little bit of sun through the windows. So it's more of a kind of amenity to the office uh, buildings around it than it is itself part of the actual office space.
5: What was the first thing you thought? When you saw the building plans for the Helix.
2: So when I first saw this, the the, the form is so striking. I kept thinking, well, what, what is this? What is really going on here? And there's an old idea that was introduced into architecture criticism by a couple of architects who studied the vernacular architecture of Las Vegas and also, you know, kind of mainstream America, the stuff you'd see along highways. And they came up with the idea of the duck. <music> Now, the duck is generally a cheaper commercial building. It's a building that looks like the thing it sells or does. So a duck is a building that looks like a duck and sells ducks, or more likely a building that looks like a donut and sells donuts, or a hot dog and sells hot dogs. So the question is, you know, if this is a duck, what, what kind of duck is it? I mean, it obviously doesn't look like a duck. It doesn't look like a donut. My argument is that the reference to DNA kind of gets at that overarching ambition of Amazon. They sell everything. DNA is the you know material sort of origins of all of life. Amazon sells everything. Commerce has been totally transformed. So I think the reference to the double helix is meant in some ways to, to sort of suggest that Amazon is the DNA of the modern American economy.
5: So what does Amazon say they're hoping that building design communicates?
2: I think they want people to see this building as the way in which they take care of their workers and the way in which they want to fit into Arlington in a a fairly gentle way that doesn't really strikingly change the economic dynamics of the area. So what they want is they they want happy thoughts. And this is a kind of happy building.
5: Do you think it communicates those things?
2: I think it communicates those things as the message they want to send. Whether or not people believe that message is going to be a very different thing. Amazon's going to put some 5.4 million square feet of office space into HQ2. It's going to bring in people with big 6 figure salaries. The housing stock is not out there to keep affordable housing at the place that it is, which is not good already in the Washington area, and absorb all those workers. It's going to be a fairly generic form of gentrification. We're going to see the cafes you're expecting. We're going to see the restaurants you're expecting. We're probably going to see the retail that you're expecting. I don't see a very organic form of urban development happening out of this unless they make a real effort at trying to create affordable spaces for smaller restaurants, smaller boutiques. Maybe things that aren't just selling stuff, you know, services, stuff that brings in a diversity of people into this neighborhood. And my argument in this piece is that, yeah, this is a building with some virtues. It's a building that's trying to send certain messages. But it's also a building that's meant, I think, to divert our attention away from the bigger change that Amazon is going to bring with it.
5: Does this building represent any sort of contrast between the Silicon Valley startup culture of the company versus the the on-the-ground reality of working in an Amazon fulfillment warehouse?
2: I think Amazon exists in the popular imagination in in two ways. There is the physical part of Amazon, which is about moving objects in space from warehouses to your front door. That involves trucks. That involves people really working against the clock all the time. It's not a pretty business. It's a hard, grueling business. And during the pandemic, those people have been, of course, really essential workers, and they've been at the front lines, potentially, of exposure to the coronavirus. But then there's Amazon, the tech company, Amazon, the disruption company, Amazon, the the company that transformed um, American commerce. This building represents that, the latter Amazon, the one that we think of as kind of a West Coast company that changed America. It's the Amazon we want to think of. Amazon is, is dealing with an enormous public image, I won't say crisis, but challenge, which is that it has become enormously big and rich and powerful. And during the pandemic, it has served the needs of many people. But even before the pandemic, there is a sense, I think Americans feel this viscerally in our bones, that if things get too big, they have too much power and they need to be dealt with. That's the challenge Amazon has. This building, I think, took a different route to dealing with that challenge. Rather than go the conventional route, it tries to sort of sidle up to you in a friendlier, slightly jokier way and say, let's have a little bit of fun with this.
1: Phil Kennicott is an art and architecture critic for The Post. Ariel Plotnick is a producer on the audio team. The Amazon Helix building at HQ2 is scheduled to be completed in 2022. If you want to see pictures of the architectural plans for that building, we'll put a link up at PostReports.com. that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Catch up on recent episodes of the podcast by going to postreports.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our daily email blast so you never miss an episode when it comes out. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.